0: Okay, um, I think we can start. And we are very lucky this evening to have a very distinguished professor come all the way from America, uh, Ralph Michaels. And when I was getting ready for this evening, I googled him. And I found out he's a very famous baseball player, according to Wikipedia. He has an entry in Wikipedia. Baseball. So I I thought, well that's extremely interesting, I wonder if we're going to talk about his great hits or something. Then I kind of had my doubts. I thought, well, maybe I'm making mistakes. So I looked at all the, the entries on Google, and there were about six for the baseball player. And then there was another entry for a professor of law. So I thought, oh, well, that must be him. And it was. So he's not going to talk about baseball, he's going to talk about, about law. But that, to me, is actually more interesting, because I'm not really so keen on baseball. Um, So he's going to talk to us about law, and um, his background is that he's from Germany originally. He studied in Germany. He studied in Cambridge. um, And he then did um, research in various places, including the Max Planck Institute in Hamburg and then he went across the Atlantic to the United States to Duke University in Durham, North Carolina and he stayed there ever since. So you could say that he combines uh, the ideals of German scholarship and American scholarship and that seems to me to be a pretty potent combination actually and he's going to talk to us today about dreaming transnational law and I won't I've got some idea what he's going to say but I won't tell you anything about it I'll let you uh, listen to it but he is an expert on comparative law and conflict of laws known to some of you as private international law so that's his background and I think we're going to have an extremely interesting talk by him And so I'll hand him
1: over to you, or you to him. Thank you, Professor Hartley. Of course, in preparation for today's talk, I also Googled Trevor Hartley, whom I knew before. (laughs) I will not tell you what I found. You should look for yourself. (laughs) Um, Professor Hartley, ladies and gentlemen, I should like to begin with a quote. Do you dream? When do you dream? What do you dream about? Do you dream about international arbitration? Is there a dream for international arbitration? Is the concept of delocalized arbitration or arbitration not controlled by national law a dream or a nightmare? You might think you heard a psychoanalyst speaking, but you would be wrong. In fact, the quote comes from an arbitration law practitioner And not just anyone, the speaker was Julian Liu, then the head of arbitration at Herbert Smith, and the occasion was the 20th Freshfield Lecture given here in London some five or six years ago. The title of his presentation was, and please remember this, Achieving the Dream, Autonomous Arbitration. And actually, Liu is far from being the only one to dream. The literature on transnational law is full of dreams, visions, and invocations of faith. We read about dreams of an adjudicatory system of autonomous arbitration outside the control of states. We find visions of a lex mercatoria, a commercial law outside the state created by markets themselves and focused exclusively on the interests and expectations of commerce. And we are confronted with calls to have faith in a new transnational law that helps us transcend the pettiness of national politics. Celia Wasserstein Fussberg, professor of law at Hebrew University, spotted the trend earlier. And I quote For a long time, the existence of Lex Mercatoria, rather like the existence of God, seemed to depend largely on the will to believe. Much early writing on the subject was characterized by an ideological, almost mystical zeal. It was advocatory rather than descriptive or analytical. Now, literature on transnational law, and especially on on international arbitration, has often um, been criticized as ideological or zealous. But the mystical aspect has largely escaped attention. In my lecture today, I want to focus on precisely this mystical angle. I want to ask why faith and dreams and visions are such frequent patterns and tropes and what that can tell us about transnational law, its promises, but also its limits. After all, neither international commercial arbitration nor transnational commercial law is your usual stuff as dreams are made on. Arbitration is essentially nothing more than a voluntary dispute resolution mechanism. Parties from different countries opt out of the state courts and instead submit their dispute to a panel of arbitrators that they designate. States were historically quite suspicious of such perceived attempts to oust ordinary courts of their jurisdiction. Today, however, most states recognize arbitration by and large. This means especially two things. At the beginning of the process, states will usually accept a valid arbitration agreement as a barrier to the jurisdiction of state courts, so no party can escape its obligations under the arbitration agreement to arbitrate. At the end of the process, states will freely recognize and enforce arbitral awards under an important treaty, the so-called New York Convention. There are limits to this recognition, however. There are limits for certain types of parties, for example, consumers. There are limits for certain types of issues, for example, certain parts of public law. And there are limits for certain matters of public policy, for example, trade in weapons. Parties may call on state courts to help enforce the arbitration agreement, but also to prevent the arbitration, sometimes even through anti-suit injunctions, or ask them to annul ensuing arbitral awards. Similar visions concern the emergence of a transnational commercial law outside of states, the so-called new lex mercatoria. Here, the tale is this. Participants in international trade are allegedly unhappy with the substantive law of nation states. National law is thought to be parochial, not catered to the requirements of the international business community, and inappropriately interventionist in the interest of protection, protecting weaker parties or public interests. Moreover, there are so many state laws that the difficult question arises, which of these laws should be applicable to any one issue? As a consequence, so the tale continues, market participants create their own laws through their customs, but also through non-state formulating agencies like the International Chamber of Commerce. The ensuing law would have been created without state participation, but now states are asked to recognize it as an applicable law. These ideas of autonomous law outside the state are ideas of a better world, a world based entirely on the free will of the parties, quote, free from the controls of parochial national laws, unquote. Arbitration, quote, exists in its own space. A non-national or transnational, or if you prefer, an international domain. It has its own space independent of all national jurisdictions. Unquote. This means that arbitral awards are truly delocalized, or, as the French court de Cassation said in its 2007 Putra Bali decision, quote, an international arbitral award, which is not linked to any national legal order, is a decision of international justice. Unquote. Where national justice, with its petty democratic processes and insistence on human rights and the like, has failed us, international justice will at last bring us to the promised land. Such a completely denationalized law is, of course, a utopia. But it is a utopia not just in the broad sense of being unrealistic, at least for the present and perhaps also for the future. No, it is a utopia in the very literal sense of the world. Recall what utopia means in Greek, no place. Delocalized arbitration law outside of states make up a utopia in the core meaning of the very word. This recognition opens up a new avenue towards analyzing the growing literature on a transnational law outside the state. We should, I suggest, read this literature as utopian and we should therefore place it alongside other examples from the venerable traditions of utopian literature and of dream literature. This in turn helps us assess both the promises and the limits of such transnational law. As I said, Julian Liu is not the only scholar to describe arbitration as a dream. Here is another quote from another scholar. Reverend Martin Luther King had a history-changing dream of the end of discrimination. Me, I had a dream about a really great conference on arbitration and how it might ultimately help lead to legal reform of arbitration. Now you may find the comparison of ending racial discrimination and reform in arbitration uh, rather, how should I say, daring. But think for a moment why Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech was so powerful. In that speech, King lays out a utopian vision of a world without racial discrimination presented as a dream. Now this dream reference is powerful in part because of its biblical reference. Recall the many dreams that we find in Scripture, from Jacob's letter through Joseph's dream, assuring him that his wife was not due to adultery, uh, his wife's birth, his son's birth, not his son's birth, let me not go down that way, all the way down to the book of Revelations, the Bible is full of such dream references, and remember what function dreams play in Scripture. Through dreams, God speaks to us. Through dreams, we see a truth that is otherwise unattainable to us, But the truth that is about to come. In this sense, dreams are not less true, but more true than our everyday reality. In the words of an analyst, like the voice of God speaking through the mouths of the prophets, the dream motif is a technique for normalizing and exteriorizing, for realizing in the original sense of that word, the sure and special presence of God. An arbitrator who dreams becomes thus a mediator. A medium connecting the audience with the truth, whether God's or someone else's. Like a mediator in dispute resolution who merely connects the parties without interfering himself, the arbitration scholar as dreamer merely connects his audience with the truth of autonomous arbitration. This means, of course, in turn, that the speaker himself is insignificant. What matters is the truth that he holds, arising from faith and thus closer contact to God. Here is a famous example from utopian literature, from Hildegard of Bingen, the famous medieval visionary nun. And I quote um, and I quote the English translation I, a poor little form and earthen vessel, speak these things not from myself, but from the serene light. Man is a vessel which God fashioned for himself, which he imbued with his spirit, so that he might accomplish his works in him, for God does not work as man does, but by the order of his command all things are carried out. And here is another example expressing the exact same thought, this one from the foreword to an Italian treatise on international commercial arbitration. If I am right, the best role each of us can play is that of bearer of our beliefs and ideals. If this is so, what matters is that these beliefs and ideals continue to be carried on, irrespective of who the individual bearer is. The believer then is nothing. The belief is everything. But note the if I am right in the beginning of the quote. How do we know if a dream is true, if our beliefs and ideals are the right ones? Sometimes in dream literature, often even the dreamer himself does not even recognize the meaning of his own dreams. Gilgamesh dreams of embracing an axe and a meteorite, but then he needs his mother to explain the meaning of the dream to him. More often, however, the problem is a different one. The visionary knows that he has seen the truth, but others will just not believe him. This happens in the Bible, and it happens in international arbitration. Jan Paulsen, another famous arbitrator and centennial professor here at LSE, reports, I quote, the terrifying experience of debating Francis Mann. Paulsen defends his vision of denationalized arbitration, but cannot convince anyone, and goes home like a defeated prophet. I quote, it will take some time for these people to see the light, I thought as I dolefully retreated homeward. See the light. For such lonely prophets, it helps to have someone else to tell whether the visionary speaks the truth and translates from God's vessel to the mortals. In theory, that could be anybody. In the reality of religion, of course, it is often the church that aims to monopolize expertise to tell us which visions are right and which are not. In the reality of arbitration scholarship, the expertise on arbitration visionaries lies with other arbitration practitioners. Here's a prophetic quote from a book review. And I quote, when and if a true lex mercatoria universally recognized and clearly stated is finally established, visionaries like Carbonneau, an arbitration professor, who have helped point out its advantages and prodded legal and academic institutions towards study and action aimed at global legal structures can take credit for a job well done. When and if, indeed, the reviewer here is a partner at Jones Day responsible for international arbitration himself. He may thus qualify as an expert about the accuracy of visions on arbitration, just like the Catholic Church provides the expertise on determining the truth value of visions. Of course, he may also, dare I say it, be someone whose business might benefit if many people believed the vision. But that, again, is true for the Catholic Church as well. It rarely recognizes visions that run against its own interests. Not that faith. Um, is a necessary requirement for the truth. We recognize God's word as such only, note that faith is a necessary requirement. We recognize God's word as such only if we believe. Again, we find this trope in the arbitration literature. Emmanuel Gaillard, head of Sherman Sterling's international arbitration practice and chair of the international arbitration, presents three alternative ways of grounding international arbitration in the nation state. First, in the state in which the arbitration takes place. Second, in every state in which the ensuing award might be recognized, (coughs) i.e., usually France. Third, in an imaginary community of all states. Gaillard shows up nicely that these different representations, as he calls them, are relevant for day-to-day issues. They actually yield different results on important doctrinal questions, like, for example, whether an international arbitral award can be recognized even if it has been annulled by a court in the place of the arbitration or whether an arbitrator has to comply with an anti-suit injunction rendered by a court. So one would think that Gaillard, after discussing these different possibilities, would tell us which of them is the most convincing one. Instead, we find this remarkable passage, and I quote, what is at stake are not matters that may be disposed of by scientific demonstration, but rather matters that belong to the realm of belief or faith. There is no such thing as a right or wrong representation of international arbitration. As for every other vision or ideology, one may share it or not. It may be efficient or inefficient, but never right or wrong. There is then, in other words, no way to the promised land through pure reason. Julian Liu's dream of an autonomous arbitration must remain a dream precisely in order to get real. We will not have its hard reality unless we believe in it. In this sense, so um, Battle Marcosinus quotes from Count Zeppelin's tombstone in Constance, not for arbitration, but for a convergence of legal orders. And I quote, first you dream, then you believe in your dream, and then it happens. The use of the quote is a little puzzling. First, you know that the Zeppelin airship actually had a rather unfortunate end when it went up in flames. The quote becomes more puzzling, indeed, when you realize that Count Zeppelin's tombstone is not in Constance but in Stuttgart. And that its inscription is also quite different. But leaving all that aside, the quote remains startling. First you dream, then you believe in your dream, and then it happens. We have a direct path here from dreaming through believing uh, to happening that requires no rational argument and no rational justification. These dreams, then, are paths to another world that is more true and more perfect, a utopia. My earlier quotes reference to the time when and if a true lex mercatoria is finally established reminds us that utopias are not always about other places. They are also about other times. Often that time is the future. Autonomous arbitration may be nowhere, but it is also always yet to come. It shares this look into the future with another utopia, socialism. In Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, published in 1887, a young hero falls asleep after a socialist meeting after a socialist meeting, not during a socialist meeting, and wakes up 113 years later in 2000 in a Boston that displays considerably more socialism than just universal health care. Everyone retires with full benefits at age 45 and may eat in any of the public kitchens. All factors of production are owned by the state. All goods are equally distributed in its citizens. Private litigation has ceased. Here, the socialist dream differs from the dream of autonomous arbitration. As has most crime, what crime remains is treated as a medical condition. And sometimes, utopia is not about the future, but about the past. Not about the promised land that is to come, but the Garden of Eden from which we have been driven, or of the Middle Ages, idealized in the 19th century by Sir Walter Scott and others, and sometimes called medievalism. William Morris, writing a short period after Bellamy, also described a dream of a socialist utopia, but his dream visioned, entitled News From Nowhere, goes not to the future but to the past, an imagined idealized Middle Ages with no private property, no big cities, no authority, no monetary system, no divorce, no courts, no prisons, and no class systems. Such medievalism exists in law as well. The romance of the Middle Ages finds its equivalent in the romance of the Lex Mercatoria, the title of an influential book. I quote from Julian Liu's own romance of his Paradise Lost, but I could quote countless other such Seemingly historical accounts. Here's the somewhat lengthy quote In the Middle Ages, the regulation of arbitration by national law was non existent or minimal. The business community was left free to structure and use an arbitration system it considered suitable for its needs. The early forms of arbitration often existed without the blessings of and perhaps oblivious to the judicial mechanisms and national laws of the sovereign states in which they operated and which may have been relevant. In fact, at that time, arbitration was crafted specifically to facilitate the dispute resolution needs of a particular industry or community. There was no need or desire to imitate the procedures of any judiciary. It was often precisely what the industry sought to avoid. To determine these disputes, arbitrators applied relevant established custom, created out of the merchants' own needs and views as the legal rules and standards according to which rights and obligations of the parties were determined, often shunning the legal technicalities and substance of local law. This was an international commercial law applicable to these international transactions, the lex mercatoria of those times. Now, literally none of this, none of this is historically true. Adjudicatory processes in the Middle Ages were exclusively local and mostly run by official entities. While we had arbitration, arbitrators were often not merchants of the trade of the parties, or they were even no merchants at all. Sometimes the processes were indeed catered to the special needs of a certain industry, sometimes not. Further, in international commercial law, a substantive lex mercatoria outside the state never existed, at least as a substantive law. All that we find are special procedural mechanisms, but hardly significant unified non-state law. In a time when it took weeks to travel from one fair to another, it is hard to see how such a law on a universal basis could ever have developed. This is not new. Legal historians have pointed out these facts for years, but their research is largely ignored. When arbitration scholars write about history, they do not cite historians. Instead, they cite other arbitration scholars. And indeed, historians and arbitration scholars have quite different projects. Historians aim at describing the actual Middle Ages to show how things actually were in the past. Arbitration scholars aim at invoking utopias of an imagined Middle Ages to show how things actually could and should be in the present and in the future. And utopias cannot be falsified by historical research. After all, it is their main characteristic that they are not true in the actual world. What follows? Why does it matter that this literature is utopian? I want to suggest three unhelpful responses and one that I think is actually helpful. Our first response would be that the dream framework is just a sinister rhetorical trick. Perhaps you might say about Julian Lewis' Utopia of an Unrestrained Arbitration, what a contemporary reviewer said about Bellamy's Utopia of a Socialist Future, calling it a text, and I quote, which in the sugar-coated form of a dream has exhibited a dose of undiluted socialism, which has been gulped by some of the most vigilant opponents of their theory without a suspicion of the poison they were taking into their system. End of quote. Arbitrators, you may say, need to rekindle the faith in international arbitration because that is how they make their money. At least one quote from a practitioner lays out quite clearly the terrible consequences that would ensue from a lack of faith. And I quote, there seems to be a belief that international arbitration is facing a crisis of confidence that could jeopardize its preeminent status. That belief is a cause of concern for the individuals, firms, organizations, and localities that have economic interest in the success and continued growth of arbitration, including lawyers, arbitrators, arbitration associations, and administrative bodies and localities that have or hope to become major centers for arbitration proceedings. After all, international arbitration has become a big business, relatively speaking. You see the invocations of belief and faith and confidence in this quote as well. But I do not think that this is actually a very helpful criticism. It is probably correct that the dreamer would benefit if his dream were to come true. But sugarcoating is present in all types of advertisement. And of course, a lot of arbitration scholarship is also a type of advertisement. In other words, this may explain why we find sugarcoating. But it does not explain why the sugarcoating comes in the specific form of dreams, visions, and faith. So here's a second possible response that we find in utopian literature and dream literature, utopianism avoids reality and instead depicts alternative, unattainable universes. I mentioned utopian socialism. So we should also recall that Marx himself was quite critical of the early utopian socialists, like Fourier, Owen, and Saint-Simon. And the criticism has been made repeatedly also against transnational law, especially in the form of Lex Mercatoria. Klaus-Peter Berger, whom I spotted, himself a proponent of lex mercatoria outside the state, reports on such criticism made against autonomous transnational law as follows, quote, opponents attack the new lex mercatoria as a legal utopia, a useful illusion, or legal dreams of the future as wishful thinking and as a disguise for the marketing of earned solution. And he defends Lex Mercatoria by denying its utopian character. He ends his impressive book by saying, in this age of private governance and legal pluralism, the new Lex Mercatoria is not a myth or dream of the future. Today, transnational commercial law, the new Lex Mercatoria, is a fact of life. It may be a matter for debate whether indeed it is a fact of life. But I also do not think that the utopian character of utopias alone is a reason to reject them. Ultimately, utopias are not about other places, but about ours. They're not about other times, but about our own. When Cicero, towards the end of his Republic, describes a dream of Scipio, the dream that becomes the most important model for dream literature in medieval England later, this dream is little more than a replication of the image of the state that he laid out before. Bellamy's dream of the future that I've referred to a couple of times is not called looking forward, but looking back. And it turns out that the people in his imagined Boston of the future have an awful lot to say about Bellamy's own time. In the end, he cares less about the beautiful reality of the future than about the capitalist nightmare of his own presence, both of those quotes from the book. In fact, in almost all dream literature, we find the same pattern. The dreamer falls asleep in a situation of great distress over the troubles of her own world. Remember Bunyan? He's then transported into another space or time that he finds to be perfect, and finally and crucially, he awakes in the here and now, relieved of his former troubles and ready to tell us others about the dream. The same is true in arbitration. News and Views, the regular publication of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, reports in the 1998 issue a so-called report of fact-finding visit to Utopia. In this report, Utopia has an arbitration act that looks almost exactly like the 1996 UK act. There's only one difference. And I quote, in the Utopian version, all of the arbitrator's powers are mandatory and subject to the unfettered discretion of the arbitrator. The parties cannot by agreement increase or limit the power of the arbitrator, end of quote. And as a consequence of this difference, everything works fine in Utopia. The report ends with the usual return to the miseries of our world. And I quote, after such an enlightening experience experience, it was so disappointing to return to England and find that nothing had really changed and our process still felt as though we were wading through treacle. I take it treacle as a particularly English reference. In fact, the proposal of a better alternative world that permeates all utopian literature always comes first and foremost as a critique of our own world. Neither Plato nor Thomas More are interested in alternative universes. They use utopia in order to critique the world of their time. In the case of autonomous arbitration, this critique is directed against the national character of law and the positivism of its sources. National commercial law is said to be inconsistent with the requirements of a global economy. Positivism, with its limited view of law as emerging from a sovereign, is said to be insufficient for a world in which much law is made by non-state actors. Legal practitioners, arbitral panels, but also also so-called formulating agencies like the International Chamber of Commerce and ISTA. The dream of autonomous arbitration speaks less to the other world, that of arbitrators, and more to ours, that of state courts and judges. State courts are asked to enforce arbitration agreements even in the face of anti-suit injunctions. State courts are asked to enforce arbitral awards, even if these awards have been annulled in their home country. Utopia provides ideas about other worlds, but the solutions it suggests are solutions for our own world. This gives way to a third possible criticism of utopian literature. If utopian literature is about our own world rather than the other, why should we have to rely on dreams, faith, vision to embrace it? Autonomous arbitration, non-state laws, are quite revolutionary ideas. Should we not then demand that they be justified by more than dreams and faith? The answer is not as clear-cut as we may first think. Consider this. A current paradigm of law, that of national positivism, the, parad- uh, the paradigm that transnational law tries to overcome is, of course, also built ultimately on a certain type of faith. Take the rule of recognition. H.L.A. Hart's suggestion that the normative bindingness of positive law rests in the socially observable fact that people, in fact, recognise the rule-making power of the sovereign. What other grounds exist for this recognition than the people's faith in the law-making authority of the sovereign? In legal positivism, the basis of all law lies in the sovereign state, but the state is a myth, as Kathira reminds us, and sovereignty as a legal concept rests not on the actual force of the sovereign, but instead on our mutual faith in it. And historically, legal positivism did not prevail over the earlier paradigm of natural law because it was more rational or less reliant on faith than natural law. No, legal positivism prevailed because in its time, the faith it required was more convincing than the earlier faith. Natural law had required a certain unity, a unity of religion where law was based in God's will, a unity of reason where law was based in reason. When this unity became questionable in times of religious pluralism, legal positivism became a response to the crisis of that unity. Now that a transcendent truth could no longer be found outside society, it had to be sought within the compromises that society was able to make through the political process in the nation state. And in the same way in which legal positivism reacted to a crisis of natural law that pre-existed, the literature on transnational law in turn can be viewed as a sign for the crisis that legal positivism is indeed suffering today. A crisis of legal positivism comes from two connected developments. The first development is globalization, the transcendence of national boundaries in commerce and communication. The second development is privatization, the growing importance of norms formulated and enforced by non-state entities. And the combination of globalization and privatization arguably calls for a global private law, autonomous arbitration, and a new lex mercatoria. The faith in sovereignty no longer holds, and this means a new faith has to be developed. In other words, the faith aspect the irrational moment that is grounding this transnational law is not its disadvantage, at least not compared to other types of law that we have experienced before. I think the real problem with the utopia of delocalized arbitration lies in another problem that we can find in utopian literature. The most powerful critique of utopia is not that it is unreal, but that it's proposed reality if taken seriously is actually frightening. Recall the criticism Sir Karl-Ryman Popper voiced against Plato, Hegel, and Marx. He took them to task not just for the utopian character of their visions of the world, but for the totalitarian aspect in them, which he viewed as anathema to an open society. More recently, a similar argument, this argument from political philosophy has received a sociological bent in Runciman's book entitled Great Books, Bad Arguments. Runciman argues that Plato, Hobbes, and Marx have insufficient understanding of the production of order in society. They think it can be brought about only through a despot. Think about it. We can learn a lot from Thomas More's Utopia, but we would not seriously want to live there. Now, there's an obvious, a seemingly obvious response to that. Autonomous arbitration is the opposite of totalitarianism because it rests entirely on party autonomy. It does not exclude personal freedom. It takes it to be the basis of the entire order. The dream of autonomous transnational commercial law is then ultimately the dream of a world. um, No, I got the wrong point there. That would be an apparent, obvious response. But it's a problematic response. The dream of autonomous transnational commercial law is ultimately the dream of a world in which political discourse has been eliminated or made unnecessary by market rationalities where the fullness of human aspirations and ideals is reduced to economic exchanges. Such an idealized world is, of course, not realistic. In our real world, we will continue to see the tensions between market claims for autonomy and state and other claims for political control, between economic rationalities that become increasingly globalized and democratic processes that remain for the time being in the realm of states. But such an idealized world, I put to you, is also not desirable. The crisis of legal positivism has made democratic control of law harder, but it has not shattered our belief, our faith, if you will, that such democratic control of law remains necessary. It is not only states that would fear an autonomous arbitration, as the literature sometimes suggests, it is us, the society of the world, that wants to remain able to limit this autonomy where core issues of justice and democracy are at stake. I come then to my conclusion. If I'm right, then the problem with achieving the dream is not in the dream part, but in the achieving part. The dream, the idea of autonomous law outside the state is interesting, exciting, thought-provoking, paradigm-shifting, helpful. It loses those advantages and becomes terrifying once we indeed try to turn that dream into something other, turn it into reality. Let me quote once more Celia Wasserstein-Fassberg. In this utopian mode, a model only needs to offer ideal characteristics of the phenomenon that is advocated. It does not need to be more than an idea. I agree, and would just like to strengthen the last point. The model also should not be more than an idea. International commercial arbitration is perfectly fine and desirable, where it fulfills the function that it has in our society, the resolution of commercial disputes, the provision of legal certainty that is necessary for global trade to take place. But of course, arbitration also has unavoidable spillover effects on the rest of society. It affects the distribution of assets and resources. It affects the rights of employees and consumers. It reduces or enhances the power of monopolists. It reduces or enhances environmental injuries, and so on and so forth. At least for now, we seem to have no better institution for these other concerns than the institutions of democratic states. Arbitration that is autonomous from the state is just as elusive as private law that is autonomous from public law. If this is correct, then our task today is to develop laws that balance the requirements of globalized markets against those of political processes and economic justice. This task has, of course, become more difficult and more exciting because of globalization. Where legal positivism has its limits, we can use all the dreams and visions and utopias that we can find. But in the end, the realities that we have to build are not in an idealized utopia, but in the messiness right here in our own world. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Barclos. And he's very kindly agreed to answer some questions, so who'd like to ask the first question Yes
2: Thank you very much for this. Um, my first question would be, in view of what Trevor said in the beginning that you are also a specialist of conflict of laws, finishing your talk, you, remind, you reminded us of the messiness in which we live. Could one say that part of that messiness, or perceived messiness, is conflict of laws, and that that might be one of the reasons why it is so convenient and so desirable to dream about some world without this mess?
1: Well, the easy answer is that, like um, Trevor Hartley, um, my income depends on the existence of conflict of laws, because that is what I teach. So this is not an idealized vision for me. It would put me out of a job. Um, But I will also say that I think it is a mistake to think that conflict of laws is the cause for the messiness. Conflict of laws is, in many regards, the response to the messiness or the fragmentation of the law that we find. And that used to be the fragmentation of just different laws of nation states. And it becomes a much more complex fragmentation today of public and private laws. So if we look at international arbitration, it dispenses with some types of conflict of laws, but of course it creates its own issues of conflict of laws. We have, where we have, lex mercatoria, the conflict between that privatized law and the laws of nation states. And of course, we have the unavoidable, as I claim, um, uh, connections between the system if it is a system of arbitration and nation states. So we will retain the fragmentation and the messiness, and so we will retain some conflict of laws. And in fact, I think some conflict of laws solutions will have to change and be developed for this new world after positivism. But I don't think conflict of laws will go away. I hope it will not go away. But it will continue to help us and see the light.
0: Could I ask you whose conflict of laws? Mine. (laughs) Transnational
1: conflict of laws or nation state conflict of laws? So I think, in fact, that the, the promise the promise of conflict of laws, and I've thought about that a lot actually, is, is decentralized character, which is not no longer true in the European Union, but it's historically true, and it's true everywhere else. So conflict of laws is always a particular perspective of one system on its relation to others. And sometimes, of course, those approaches do not um, match and lead to tensions. but. We do not need for such a system some world government or some global hierarchically superior law that allocates conflicts to one system or the other. Such a world government, I think, just as autonomous arbitration, would be undesirable. But I also think it would not be necessary.
0: OK, well, I cheated by backing in. Yes. Um.
3: I'm very sorry if I am dreaming too much this evening. To to what extent transnational law could be considered just as uh, standard technology, such as telecommunication? As you say, um, some of procedures that basically aims to minimize transaction costs. If this makes sense, it could be, I mean, we we could use um, a theoretical framework, such as, I mean, the concept of leapfrogging, network markets, and uh, expectations. What about if one think that the concept of dream, faith, vision, utopia are basically what is understood as expectations in network markets? Does it make sense?
1: So, I think there are two different styles in arbitration literature, and one points to the rational advantages like economic efficiency, like providing superior procedures, techniques, and says all of this is really um, just about efficiency and there's the other style, and I think it is a dramatically other style that i 've um, focused on in the lecture today, which does invoke faith, vision, faith, not as pure rational expectations of parties, but really in gaiard 's i mean Gaard 's language is really. And Jan just pointed it out, it's a religious language, right? He says, this is a matter de croyance, de foi. This is actual faith in something. That's not just expectations. And it's a curious element, I find, in the arbitration scholarship, how it moves back and forth between on the one hand saying, this is just rational. If you think straight, you will realize this is just intrinsically superior. And then goes back and says, we need faith and vision to actually make this come about. So. I think the element that you mentioned is also present, but I think it is not what carries all the literature, and it's uh, different from the element that I focused on today. Now, you could, of course, say, I just put this in the introduction of their talk. Julian Liu talks about the dream in the first paragraph, and the word dream never appears again. In the end, he just says uh, to what extent states should stay out. And so you could say this is just marginal, and the real meat is in the technique debate. And that's, of course, what everyone focuses on. And I just think there is something in these invocations. They're too frequent to just mean what you say, to just be about expectations and efficiency. I think they are about a crisis of positivism, a crisis of faith in what we have today, but also the desire to create a certain new faith in 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 a specific type of new law that the authors um, hope for
3: and desire. Okay, gentleman over there. Yeah, I have to be careful not to say too much because I'm really fascinated by what you said. Uh, I'm dreaming this dream back home in Cologne at Cologne University in Germany where I'm director of the Center for Transnational Law. I expected a speech just on the new Lex Mercatoria which for me is only substantive law. I, I never even, may sound surprising, but I never used the term transnational law for arbitration. And the reason is that I think Julian Liu's view is not in line with the law. Why? Because. The the notion of of, of detached, delocalized arbitration was developed in the 1960s in France, because at that time, the French arbitration law was very strict. So people tried to get away from these strict rules. Uh, Today, we have very modern liberal arbitration laws, like the UNCITRAL Model Law, 1996 English Act, and the concept that gives the answer is very simple. It's the seat. It's the seat. The seat of the arbitration. Section 2 of the English Act says, once the seat is fixed in England, the English Arbitration Act applies. Now, the act is very liberal, contains many non mandatory provisions, so it looks as if it's detached from domestic law, but it's not. The freedom is granted by the law. So, for me, arbitration has always been connected to a domestic law. That's Savigny, you know, the, the seat as the, as the conflict rule, basically. Territorialization, that's what Savigny thought. And that's what we still do. It's surprising, but that's what we do in the area of arbitration. However, and that's what Schmidhoff said, substantive law is born in the womb of procedure. And that's the new lex mercatoria. So the rules are developed by the tribunals Uh, the rules of the new Lex Victoria, and there uh, I'm still dreaming that dream, and I think that in an area of globalization, (coughs) private governance, and best practice rules, we're facing a development away from domestic law. But I would, my personal perspective has always been to limit this notion of transnational law to substantive law, whereas arbitration is basically domestic, at least it's linked to a domestic legal system
1: that lacks local arbitration. So I, I, I try to focus on both in a parallel way without claiming that one is necessarily the other. But I also see, think there are some parallel limits to these visions. So we have the vision of autonomous arbitration, but then the necessary link to the state. In this speech, um, Julian Liu quite strikingly says, on the one hand, this system has to be autonomous and be recognized as such by the states. And then he says, and for that reason, that autonomous system has to be recognized and enforced by the states. So precisely because arbitration does not depend on the recognition of the state, the states absolutely have to recognize it and enforce it as strongly as they can. So there's a certain inconsistency there, I think, in the reasoning. And we have some of that same reasoning in some of the Lex Mercatoria um, literature that says, on the one hand, this is an autonomous legal system that is created totally outside of the state. And it follows, therefore, that states absolutely have to enforce that law and have to enforce arbitral rewards um, grounded in it. But I also think, talking about the substantive law part, there's a difference between saying there is law outside or beyond the state, which is undoubtedly true, and saying this creates an autonomous legal system outside of all states. My sense from having looked into that is that the first is certainly true, and the second does not seem to be true, even empirically. Because we have um, where issues of genuine public policy and national policy are at stake, um, adjudicators of this transnational law, even where they are arbitrators, seem to hesitate to develop these on their own, but rather they refer to states for these purposes. So there is still a certain division of labor in which commercial issues are developed outside the state, of course, to some extent inspired by state laws and in interaction with those. Um, but specific public policy concerns remain outside of this system and remain, by and large, uh, within states. And, and there, I think that the Claim of an autonomous system of lex mercatoria, just as the claim of an autonomous system of international arbitration, is not empirically accurate. I also think it is not normatively desirable for, for more or less the same reasons.
0: Okay, I think Michael Bridge is next, and then, um, then uh, you, okay, I'm with half that,
4: <laughs> uh, Trevor, you started uh, the evening's proceedings by. Um, giving us a reference to baseball yes. and uh, there's something about this because if you look at the literature of baseball I'm thinking of Roger Angel who writes in the New Yorker and if you think about the literature of cricket and the late Neville Cardus was uh, an exponent of this the way they see the game is not quite the way the grimy players who play the game see the game so if we take a look at arbitration, I've always been puzzled by this quasi-religious aspect of it, um, which to me resembles to a degree that other great quasi-religious faith of our time, namely environmentalism. Um, what I see is people driven by the practicalities of being able to choose the arbitrator, being able to get the awards enforced in a large number of countries, and being able to obtain a measure of confidentiality. Um, and when one sees that successful <laughs> you do begin to wonder um, whether there is very much in the notion that um, people who submit to arbitration are on the of legal technicalities um, and the um, delicacy and uh, intricateness of the law. And when you talk also about bearing the message to the arbitrator being merely the media, in practice shouldn't
1: that may be the case. I will say, by the way, that arbitration uh, baseball, of course, also has its uh, religious aspects when you live in Boston and think of the curse of the Bambino. Um, but um, I'm not sure. I wouldn't even be. I don't, I don't want to be too, too cynical about all of this, really. Um, <laughs> so I think that, of course, um, arbitration practice um, makes money from the existence and the continued uh, relative autonomy of arbitration. And I also think that often when we hear what the parties really want, it is not clear whether that is not what their um, law firms actually really want, because the parties don't think that much about actual um, arbitration agreements and all of that. Um, But I think that whether they're observers or participants, there is a genuine belief in some of these things. It's not pure cynicism to say we dream of this, or we actually think we have a vision of arbitration that transcends just the fact that we buy our next Ferrari from it. It's not just about buying the Ferrari. And so I'm, I may sound critical in this, but I'm really interested in that utopian aspect more than just to say, you're just out there for the money. because. That's true for many people. That would not be so specific to arbitrators, except maybe they make more money than many among us. Yeah. story is the arbitrators who people to arbitration they arbitrators may not be the same as the way the Oh, no. That's, that, that, that's probably true. And I think much of this discourse, as I said, is an internal discourse within the legal discipline We're between arbitration scholars and arbitration practitioners, who tend to be the same people. Right? Arbitration scholars are all practitioners and practitioners are all arbitration scholars. And that may explain why the scholarship is so very positive about arbitration. Uh, yes. Um, but, so, and and the parties may have a very different vision uh, on that. but. My suspicion is also that the parties get their legal advice from their law firms on why they should go to arbitration rather than to courts. And they go with that. And in some cases, it may not be in their interest, but in their lawyer's interest. But that's because I I don't think they think about this that much. It's not the discourse that interests me so much here.
3: I don't think most
1: corporations have to be protected from their own legal ignorance.
5: I should apologize in advance, Ralph, for asking the question because the question's already been asked twice before, once by Eduardo uh, and again by Michael Bridge here. Uh, I don't think the dream analogy works, and the reason I don't think the dream analogy works is because I think of who are the subjects of dreams, and, well, the subject of dreams are individual humans in all their humanity the ego, the id, and the super ego, and so forth. When one asks oneself who are the subjects of transnational law, they're all corporations. Now, corporations don't dream. Corporations are entities that pursue a strict economic logic. There's no dream here. It's strict utilitarian rationality dream analogy, the, the dreamers, as Michael was trying to suggest I, I think, the dreamers are the arbitrators on the periphery of the system who are trying to make the system more than simply a utilitarian device for the resolution of corporate disputes.
1: Yeah, I have no problem with that. I would agree with that. But my, my focus is not really here in the, economic efficiency for corporations. And my take is also not really, in the end, a psychoanalytical one, despite my introduction. I mean, I don't focus here on uh, Sigmund Freud, and I don't focus on Bloch on Utopia and what it does for us. I focus on literature question, the question how there is a literature that uses dreams and utopias in very interesting ways. And we know a lot of that from literary, um, from. Literature analysis and how these same tropes reappear in uh, writings on arbitration and Lex Mercatoria, and how, in fact, they perform very similar functions there. From the f- that's a mistake. <laughs> um, from the functions that we find that we find in literature. So yes, of course, these are debates among lawyers, and these are ways in which arbitration <laughs> practitioners, first and foremost, try to convince. Each other and the rest of us that this is actually a good version of what the law should look like in the future, with um, only stylized references to what the interests of the parties actually are. So I have no I have no problem with saying this is legal. This is lawyers' um, uh, style and rhetoric, rather than actual attempts at uh, actual description of the world of um, of corporations. But it's there. So it's, it's, you can say this cannot be a dream, but the dream is referenced again and again, and the faith is referenced again and again. And that's a stylistic device that we tend to just gloss over because we think it doesn't matter, but that I think once we look into it gives us insights into the reality not of corporations and their interests, but certainly of the state of the law that we are in. And ultimately, I'm, as a lawyer, and if you want legal theorists, I'm interested in that aspect of it and not the interests of of corporations and their hopes.
0: HUGH COLLINS.
6: Thanks, Ralph, um, for articulating a a feature of this literature, which I noticed as well, but not really thought about. Dismissed it. I wondered if I could press you to uh, do a little interpretation of this dream. Around a theme that you raised in your talk, you you talked about uh, the, the crisis of legal positivism, the crisis of natural law. And these these ideas of law uh, have ideas about h- how you discover and identify that law, natural law. At least some versions it 's about the exercise of human reason to discover the basic principles of nature, uh, positivism, a rule of recognition, or something of that kind and I, in these dreams, I wondered what you thought the the, the way the dreamers thought they would I- identify transnational law, whether how how do you know it when you when they see it? What what, what features does it have? I I am aware you know you mentioned some negative features like it's not national law. But that's but there are lots of things that aren't national law. How do we know? How do we know it when
1: we see it? Do the dreamers tell
6: us very clearly?
1: Do you think? So not in that dreams, I think. But I think what we see are interesting remnants of the earlier paradigms, if you want, coupled with some ideas of new paradigms. So the invocation of economic rationality as the basis for the right legal rule is a natural law invocation in the end. The idea that through reason we can develop what the correct uh, rules are. Paradigmatically, that's that's a remnant of natural law. Domain. The um, argument to say that applicable rules are those that we can find in the formulations of formulating agencies is a remnant of positivism. To say that once we have a text there that is a written text, um, we can rely on that. In fact, my friend and colleague Niels Janssen has written this uh, quite impressive book on non-state codification where he says the decisive thing about codification has never been that it emerged from the state but always that it provided um, directly accessible rules came in a certain form, and it's that form that enables us to apply that law. So although this is said to be new, it has remnants from natural law, it has remnants from positive law, and then it has claims of deriving actual rules from the observation of the sociological conduct that Act, uh, participants in the market, in fact, engage in and derives from that the actual rules and norms in the way in which, I guess, the common law was idealized for some time, right? How we say we just observe what the what the English commoners actually do, and that then we turn that, um, we turn that into a law. And in all of these, obviously, as Michael already said, it is described as a process of just discovery, kind of descriptive theory of the law, where, in reality, we have actual deciders who, of course, um, on the basis of a lot of different and not always open uh, considerations, draw on one set of rules um, or another. I think, I mean, in some ways, of course, all these um, invocations of dream and faith and some type of connection to the truth are ways of invisibilizing the process of actual decision-making that, that draws not on some outer source, be it God, which it usually isn't in arbitration, but be it some other truth. But I wouldn't say that alone allows us to, to um, discredit this out of hand, because of course, at the end of positivism, we have this crisis. Where do we find our rules? Just as in the end of tonality in music, we have the problem, where do we derive our harmonies and, 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 and notes from? And so it's a searching process. It's a sign for a crisis. When we have crises, we always find utopias and faith and true prophets and false prophets. And some of them eventually emerge as victorious, and then we'll know again, I hope. And you and I can then go to Italy again and talk about that.
0: (laughs) Well, do we have any more questions? Who else would like to ask a question? Yes. You'd like to ask two questions.
2: <laughs> we, we've heard lots about the practitioners being in charge of dreaming, of having visions, and trying to implement them for whatever reasons. Um, and I wondered, what, what is the academics role in all of this? Um, the economic role of what? The, the academics role oh. in contributing to either dreams, visions, faith, or is it just deconstructivists, as one could maybe infer from your speech?
1: I mean, as I said, as you've said too, there's an overlap between many academics and practitioners. And in a sense, then it's also hard to say they have really different roles, at least they don't seem to perform different roles. I think what we've seen, and you're much more an expert than I am, of course, um, for a long time, there was a startling lack of academic interest in international arbitration in particular, and a very restricted interest in um, Lex Mercatoria as an abstract concept rather than something with actual content. I mean, Klaus Peter Berger's book that says let's actually look what that actually is as opposed to just talking about this in the abstract is a significant academic step in that sense forward to saying we actually um, deal with these issues. I mean, I do think that academia and scholarship has the role that it always has with areas of the law and that it performs actually much better in others, which is um, provide a better and fuller understanding not of the law in its content, if you want systematize that. Have a theoretical understanding of what its foundations actually are. In a sense, you can say this focus on faith and dream, if it's not just silly, is an attempt at least to get at one aspect of these foundation questions that are under-theorized, I think. In, I mean, practice doesn't really have to deal with those. And practice-oriented scholarship doesn't always um, fully capture those. And then, of course, also has a task that it has in all the other fields, which is critique developments that seem undesirable and um, support developments that um, that are desirable from a certain perspective. And we don't have a lot of that yet, because academics who are in arbitration often tend to benefit from arbitration. But the flip side to say all international commercial arbitration is just evil because it is economic would obviously be unhelpful, um, unhelpful as well. But I think it's really, it looks to me, I, I come at this more from theory of transnational private law than from specific knowledge of arbitration. But it seems there's a lot of foundation, of economic foundation, and theoretical understanding that needs to be built before we can actually reach that um, uh, that stage in a in a, in a satisfactory comprehensive uh, comprehensive fashion. So it's good that you do that.
0: Well, we've probably got time for one more question. Is anybody who would like to ask a final question?
1: Yes. I'm I'm trying to to apply that dream of transnational commercial law because it seems that maybe the word commercial could be added to the title. Uh, and yes. according to the topics that we've been dealing with. Um, to, the, to the process of, of unification within the European Union, um, and I would like to, see you, uh, to know your opinion if you think that we are walking
2: towards that utopia within the European Union. We have harmonised the conflict of laws
1: um, which, um, and arbitration seems to remain outside the European Union. Uh, do you think that now on the, on the table we have this proposal to harmonise
5: as well substantive contract law or parts of it in the European Union. Do you think that we are actually walking towards that utopia, that if that project
1: came to reality, we would improve our society? Would we have any benefit out of it? Whether we would have benefits out of that or not is probably a very broad question. But. Um, I mean, let me say first, in the literature on European private law, we find the same array of invocations of dream and vision and faith. Somehow, for a long time, European private law was largely a matter for, for visionaries, and you didn't have to be very specific. That, of course, has a tradition. Michael mentioned bonfires before. Famously, when the German civil code is enacted, Professor in Freiburg has a bonfire in celebration of the German civil code, and he and his students all dance around it and shout hooray, we have a civil code. So that shows you one difference between uh, civil lawyers and common lawyers who (laughs) might not have a bonfire. Um, I tend to think that it's been a problem for Europeanization of private law that it rested so long on visions and utopias, because it focused on issues that in some ways are the less important ones. Whether we have a European civil code or not is not as important as is the uh, development of private law that we have elsewhere in in free market, uh, in in, in common market focused um, uh, EU legislation that intervenes in private law and in the private law of the member states in very significant ways and for some reason stayed outside of the vision of a European private law that is somehow neutral and beneficial and unproblematic, um, unproblematic to all. So I think if we get something that goes beyond the blue button, blue button optional instrument at some point, um, there may be bonfires somewhere again. But it will be less significant than the, econ- than the economic law developments that, that, we, ha- that we have elsewhere that's my sense. I've been in the U.S. for a long time that I, all the excitement and um, terror of European private law no longer moves me as much in my little German heart as it once did.
0: <laughs> well, I don't think there'll be any bonfires in this country, actually, if they, uh-huh. they, they do that. But um, I'm sure we could go on longer, but we've got to stop now, so I'd like to thank Ralph Michaels very much for extremely interesting talk and a very thought-provoking talk, I think, and maybe some of us will go home tonight and dream about transnational law, and if we do, it'll be all your fault. Anyway, thank you very much, uh, indeed, for a very interesting talk.